We're glad to see you all here tonight. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and um, really happy you're here. Uh, last fall, here at the Central Library, we hosted Pride and Passion. Uh, it was an, a wonderful traveling exhibit on the Negro Leagues, and uh, it was here from late October until early December. We had a lot of programming uh, in conjunction with the exhibit, and we invited Rebecca Alpert to be part of that programming, but she we she had some scheduling conflicts and was unable to come um, come to Baltimore last fall. So we're really delighted that she agreed to come down from Philadelphia this evening to be here with us and to talk about her new book, Out of Left Field, Jews and Black Baseball. It tells a story of Jewish sports entrepreneurs, political radicals, and a team of black Jews from Belleville, Virginia, who made their mark on the segregated world of the Negro Leagues. It's a story that probably not too many of not too many baseball fans or even Negro Leagues fans know, and yet the influence of these um, Jewish entrepreneur entrepreneurs was really profound. Uh, Rebecca Alpert is Associate Professor of Religion and Women's Studies at Temple University. Her previous book is Whose Torah? Question mark a concise guide to progressive Judaism. And please join me in giving Rebecca Alpert a um, rousing Baltimore welcome. If you tell people that you're writing about baseball, they're usually waiting to make you, for you to make some bad jokes and silly puns. And then if you tell people you're writing about Jews in baseball, they always say, Sandy Koufax, that's what they say. They say, Hank Greenberg. Or maybe they just kind of look at you like Jews, baseball, what are you, crazy? If you tell people you're writing a book about Jews in black baseball, they really just look at you like funny because as, as Judy suggested, this is not a topic that, that anybody really has ever explored before. That's what professors do, right? They write books about things that no one has ever had any interest in whatsoever. So, but um, my, my goal this evening is to share with you some thoughts that, in fact, are, are not terrifically funny. Uh, but I hope they will provoke you to think about the role that baseball plays in American society and get a great, greater appreciation of how Jews who aren't often studied these mid-20th century entrepreneurs and communists and Hebrew Israelites negotiated the terms of their religious, ethnic, and, and racial identities in an era before and after World War II. And um, that's actually where I'd like to start. I want to start with, with Hank Greenberg coming home from the war and encountering uh, Jackie Robinson. And this is a little clip. Let's see if I can uh, get, this, get this right. Yes, it's narrated by me. Uh, I, I'm in this film. This is from a film called uh, American, uh, excuse me, Jews and Baseball, uh, an American Love Story. And uh, you'll notice that I didn't feel like trying to queue up the DVD, so I embedded a clip, but the watermark will uh, mar your vision slightly. It's 1947, and Hank Greenberg is playing his last year as a Pittsburgh Pirate traded from the Detroit Tigers in the National League. And it's Jackie Robinson's first year as a Brooklyn Dodger. 
The Dodgers had signed Jackie Robinson to a contract, breaking the color barrier in baseball that prohibited blacks from playing in the major leagues. He's had a heck of a year. He's had to endure incredible anger and viciousness from all kinds of players and fans and death threats. Enter Hank Weaver. Jackie Robinson gets a hit, running down the first base line. Hank Weaver to the first base. It was a hush in the crowd because nobody knew how one or the other would react. They both got up, they dusted themselves off. Jackie was safe at first. And my dad went over and said, Are you okay? And this was at a point when many white ball players would not speak to Robinson. Greenberg, famous as it was, helped Robinson out. He said, You know, don't listen to this stuff when you're hearing from the same ones. I heard a lot of that stuff too. After the game, the press asks, what happened between you and Hank Greenberg, Jackie? Jackie said, Hank Greenberg is a class act. Class sticks out all over the net. My dad has told me many times that he thought he had it tough in the 30s when he was getting anti-Semitic bars hurled out from his hand. He said, but he didn't know what tough was until he saw what Jackie Robinson had. Our country had just finished fighting against racism in Germany, against the Jews. And at the same time, all of the earlier experiences of anti-Semitism, being excluded from places, not being able to find jobs, not being welcomed at universities, not being welcomed in certain housing, were beginning to fade for Jews in the United States. At the same time, we had our own racism to contend with. And Jews became a very, very important factor in trying to fight that racism here. Brooklyn fans, many of them Jews, flocked to Ebbets Field to see Robinson and the Dolly Dodgers. I myself grew up in Brooklyn and I have very, very strong memories of my mother telling me that the Brooklyn Dodgers were Jewish because they did the right thing. They were the first to integrate baseball, and when I went to see baseball games as a child, the Yankees still hadn't brought a black player onto their team. So, for my mother, the Dodgers really were a shining example of appropriate, good behavior, social justice, and what Jews were supposed to do in our society. And Jackie Robinson was really one of my early Jewish heroes. So. Um, that's, that story really was my story and that insight that um, Jackie Robinson was a Jewish hero or what I call the Jewish icon was really the seed of this project that um, I'm, I came here tonight to speak to you about. Um, the role that Robinson played in Jewish life absolutely fascinated me. Uh, there are um, poems and memoirs and novels and kids' stories, uh, like the one on the left, Thank You, Jackie Robinson, by Barbara Cohen, um, or the one on the right, which is a children's book, uh, Jackie's Gift, by his daughter, Sharon, about Jackie buying a Christmas tree for his Jewish neighbors in Brooklyn, uh, and, and having, because he wanted, he wanted them to celebrate, and he thought they didn't have a, this is a true story, and he thought, my God, goodness, they're, they're, they're not well enough, to have a, well enough off to have a Christmas tree. And that's, in fact, apparently, according to um, Albert Robito, how uh, how Jackie Robinson learned a lot about 
about Jews, and it, it influenced his daughter enough to actually write this, write this children's book about the experience. But all of, all of these stories, and even a Broadway play, uh, were written from the perspective of this relationship between Jews and blacks. And so I asked myself, well, what really made Robinson a Jewish hero? Uh, did the Jews have victim envy? Um, did we have a sense of shared oppression? Or really, was it an opportunity for Jews just to claim an American identity um, and, you know, welcome Robinson into the fold as it was with as, as being being his fans? I basically, would conclude all of the above. Um, but while I was investigating all these aspects of Robinson's connection to the Jews and, and during his ascent to fame, I became interested in what came before. Obviously, but maybe not always so obviously, this, uh, the idea of the great man approach to history reveals that others had to lay the groundwork to what made the great man possible. This was true in the civil rights movement. It was true in the gay liberation movement. Um, so I asked myself, well, wait, what came before Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey? Um, what, what was that story? And the answer was the Negro Leagues, right? And I really wanted to understand and know more about them. And, and what role maybe, the, if the Jews had such a big role in Jackie Robinson, did they have any role in what, in what preceded? And um, finding that out was both very easy and very hard. Uh, it was easy because the black press covered the Negro League baseball absolutely thoroughly and passionately. And there really is a lot of recorded history in old African-American newspapers. And then there are a whole generation of baseball fanatics, frankly, who are mostly white men, um, who were obsessed with Negro League history and produced many volumes, um, took these uh, former Negro League players out of obscurity, uh, produced oral histories about them. It was basically in, in the 1970s. But despite the fact that Negro League baseball was a, a big business in its time, good records were not kept and much really had been lost. And there's, there was absolutely no interest in the Negro Leagues whatsoever. They had to kind of be rediscovered between uh, the time of uh, Jackie Robinson's uh, uh, debut in the major leagues in the 1940s and the 1970s when all these people got very interested in rediscovering the Negro Leagues. Many of the players had died. Much of the information wasn't tapped. Um, and, and most blacks, once Robinson moved into the majors, turned to watch him and the other blacks who slowly entered the game in the major leagues. Um, and so Negro League Baseball suffered a, a rather quick demise in the early 1950s. Now, Robinson himself was not a big fan of Negro League Baseball, and that was probably what made him a good candidate to become the first black in the majors. Uh, he, he didn't like the conditions or approve of the business practices. But the Negro Leagues were foundational, and Robinson could not have broken the colored line if there hadn't been segregated teams to begin with. Right? The Negro Leagues provided regular opportunities and an avid audience for the major league caliber players of African descent from the late 1800s until 1947. These leagues were a necessary precursor to the integration of baseball. So since the Jews had such a passion for Robinson, it, it led me to wonder about whether the Jews had any connection to the Negro Leagues. It was a question that was rarely asked. There were figures on the business side who were assumed by all the Negro League researchers to be Jewish. And this fact was casually mentioned. It turned out some of them were, but some of them weren't. Um, Jewish Jackie Robinson research turned up one other important clue, though. 
two groups of people pressured for the integration of baseball for decades. The main ones were the African-American press, starting as early as the 1920s, with occasional support from the mainstream press, and constant support from the sports writers of the Daily Worker, the communist newspaper, all of whom were Jews. What I didn't expect was that I would also discover that Jews played in the Negro Leagues and they had their own team called the Belleville Grays. Now, as you can see from this photo, the Jews I'm talking about defy most American expectations. In our common understanding, Jews are white, black Jews converted or were the product of interracial marriage. But these black Jews belong to a community known, uh, oddly, as the Church of God and Saints of Christ. Well, the plot thickens. What do Jews have to do with Christ? Uh, these Jews assert proudly that they are from the religion of Jesus, but not the religion about Jesus. And they do not share Christian beliefs about a triune God or the saving power of resurrection. They observe the Sabbath, uh, follow the Jewish calendar, read from the Hebrew Bible, use a common Jewish liturgy, and today call their leaders rabbis. Some of the congregations have many practices that are very similar to those we commonly understand as Jewish, blended with African-derived traditions. But whatever were they doing with a baseball team that in 1938 and 1939 was the best in Virginia and provided good competition for traveling teams like the Homestead Grays, after which they were probably named, the Pittsburgh Crawfords, the Kansas City Monarchs, and the Newark Eagles, all of whom against whom they played. Um, the answer has a lot to do with the man in the picture in the suit there. His name was Rabbi uh, Howard Zebulon Plummer. It was Howard's father, William Plummer, the second leader uh, of the movement. Um, the first leader was a man, William Saunders Crowdy, who was an ex-slave who had a prophetic vision that African Americans were descended from the Israelites and should practice a biblical religion. Um, it was William Plummer who started the team. Plummer's community settled in Belleville, Virginia in the early 1900s. Land-owning blacks in the South in that era were rare, but the uh, Church of God community grew and prospered. They farmed, but not cotton. They operated a home for widows and orphans. They ran a lumber mill, produced beautiful liturgical music, and lived communally. They had a Sunday school for their youth, adopting customs of African Judaism from an itinerant teacher, an Ethiopian rabbi named David de Kolskrida. Believing that Judaism was an all-encompassing way of life, Plummer also built a wooden ballpark and started a team that consisted of community members, first called the Belleville Industrial School Team, and then the Grays, although they were locally referred to as the Saints and sometimes the Plummer Men. Uh, their Sunday afternoon games became a local meeting place for African Americans who, in Virginia at the time, had few other venues to congregate publicly. Picnics before the games became quite popular and regularly drew many hundreds of people to Belleville. Uh, that's a picture of the father of a man from whom I learned a lot of this. His name was Josiah Wagner, and he had photos of his, of his father um, playing for the Belleville Grays. That's the stand. They, they actually built those grand, the, the, the community built those grandstands. That's a picture of the Grays team in 1930, you, you probably, 20s rather. You probably can't see the insignia, but it says Belleville Industrial School. And that's, um, that's a, a community photograph that's 
Howard Z. Plummer in the middle, the man who was in the suit before is the second baseman um, when he played in the 1920s, and two of his brothers, and that's a, a team photo, <clears throat> excuse me, from the, 19, from the 1920s. Uh, Howard, who played second base on, on his father's team, became the leader of the community in 1931. But he had greater ambitions than his father for the team. For him, it was not simply recreation, but part of a plan to situate his community on the national African-American map. Plummer brought in players like, and if you, again, you know the Negro Leagues, Tommy Sampson, Gentry Jessup, and Buster Haywood, who was my very favorite, uh, who would later be stars in the Negro Leagues. Um, it's, it's obvious, uh, Jessup and Sampson were not members of this community, but we really can't say definitively whether Haywood was or not, but there, we have a little bit of evidence, the uh, best I could find, indicate that he in fact might have been. Anyway, we'll, we'll meet up with Buster Haywood again later in, in our story. Uh, but with these additions, these uh, local uh, really, really fantastic uh, players, uh, Plummer built a team that would train in Florida, compete against some of the best teams in the Negro Leagues, and get involved in regional league competition. Plummer's ambitions, however, were on a collision course with his religious principles. The team wouldn't play on the Saturday, on the Sabbath, so making a schedule away from home was often difficult. Negro League baseball was, in fact, a rather ruthless business, and Plummer had many angry fights with other owners of whose tactics he disapproved. Uh, when the better players were drawn away by other teams, Plummer gave up on his hopes of making the Grays into national contenders. During the time of Plummer's involvement, that is, during the Depression, the majority of Negro League owners were African-American, many of whom had made their wealth through organized crime and gambling. While in earlier eras of black baseball there were many white owners, most had moved on by the time of the Depression. There were virtually no Jewish owners among the white owners in the pre-Depression era, although most people believed that there were. Uh, what you see there in the upper left is, uh, uh, this is uh, actually the upper right, the little nice looking little white man on the upper right is, is Jewish. His name is Max Rosner. Uh, but the man on the, uh, and he's on the front of my book, but the man on the very, very shady picture of him on the back cover of my book um, is because he, this was a man named Nat Strong. He was extremely well known. He made a fortune before, you know, in the 20s booking games, owning Negro League teams. The newspapers, particularly the black press, but, but elsewhere, called him the Hebrew menace. Um, but Strong was of Welsh, not Jewish descent. Uh, Max Rosner, uh, his business partner, provided a venue and crowds for black baseball teams to play against. Uh, his, his white Brooklyn Bushwicks were the, was pr apparently the best white semi-pro team in the country in the 1920s and 30s. But uh, Rosner wasn't the operator that Strong was, and he was actually not directly involved in black baseball. That blacks thought Strong was Jewish says a lot about stereotypes and Jews of Jews and money that were rampant during that era and I guess still today. Of the few whites who got involved during the Depression, however, almost all of them were Jewish. The Jews who became owners of Negro League teams were a complicated lot their involvement grew from a combination of their love of sport and their other limited business opportunities that were available to them as children of recent Eastern European immigrants without large reserves of capital to invest. 
Their entrepreneurial skills found a welcome home in Negro League ball. There were um, a small number of Jewish owners of major league teams in the earlier part of the century, mostly of German Jewish backgrounds, wealthier men. Uh, but by the time the, time the Depression rolled around and anti-Semitism was fact on the rise, team ownership had become the prerogative of very wealthy upper classes, and only uh, the owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates, William Benzwanger, who inherited the team from his father-in-law from the earlier period, uh, remained. Now, in my book, I focus on three Jewish men who were owners of black baseball teams starting in the 1920s. Who you see there is Ed Gottlieb. Uh, he's a Philadelphian, started out as a baseball and basketball player. He was the driving force behind the greatest Jewish basketball team of all times. Uh, you may or may not know that, uh, that basketball was a Jewish sport in the 19-teens and 20s and even up through the 30s and, and 40s. And the Philadelphia, South Philadelphia Hebrew Association team, the Philadelphia Spas, was one, one of the uh, leading semi-professional teams around. Um, it, it, oddly, I guess maybe not so oddly, basketball being a Jewish game, the Jewish players were celebrated for their cunning. Uh, the, the early versions of basketball, again, it's not my subject, People sometimes are fascinated by, by basketball. It was a very cerebral game. Uh, it was more like chess with physical bodies, I think, than, um, than the kind of uh, really daring uh, leaping and jumping game that it is, that it is today. Uh, and these guys were, they were, Eddie was like 5'3". I mean, they were pretty short. It was a very, very different game. Um, Gottlieb's basketball interest led him to become an owner of a sporting goods store and later a booking agent who controlled where baseball teams would play ball throughout the greater Philadelphia region. Uh, one of my, one of the, the former Negro League players I talked to basically said, you want to play baseball in Philadelphia, black or white, you go through Gottlieb. I mean, he really controlled all of the ballparks. And, and, and as I was mentioning before, one of the largest problems with Negro League play, and with some of the white semi-professional teams as well, was that they really uh, didn't have the money to have to invest in in stadiums. Owning a stadium and being able to play in a stadium was the thing that kept them really from being able to establish real strength in their home areas. Um, now, Gottlieb also didn't have the capital to own stadiums, but he became the one you had to know in order to book a game at the venues that he himself was renting. Through this work, he met Nat Strong. He actually became Strong's business partner. And he also met Ed Bolden, who was an African-American postal worker and a leading figure in black baseball in Philadelphia. When Bolden wanted to start a new team in 1933, he turned to Gottlieb as a silent partner. Gottlieb and Bolden jointly owned the uh, Philadelphia Stars, which was Philadelphia's African-American team, for 20 years. And Gottlieb went on to be the only white officer, you'll see him down there with, with his partner uh, on the bottom left, in the, in the Negro National League. All of those other people, that many of them very light-skinned, but they are all African-Americans. And this was the power trust of the Negro National League in, um, in the 1930s. Um, Gottlieb was criticized by some for using the Negro Leagues to make money for himself, but appreciated by many others for what they thought of as his business sense and also leadership um, in, the, in the leagues. The, the second man that I wrote about was a fellow named Abe Saperstein, uh, probably a very familiar figure, but like Gottlieb, known mostly for his involvement in basketball. 
Uh, of course, Saperstein was the owner and founder of the Harlem Globetrotters. And while Saperstein's fame derived from basketball, much of his wealth uh, came from his involvement in the Negro Leagues before the 1950s when the Globetrotters became a household name and really started making money for him. Operating out of Chicago, he was part owner of several Negro League teams, including the Birmingham Black Barons, the Chicago American Giants, and the Seattle Steelheads. Saperstein was also the booking agent for the Negro American League, like Gottlieb was for the Negro National League, um, and responsible for publicity for the main attraction of the combined league seasons, the East-West game, which was an all-star game played annually in Chicago that attracted huge crowds and all the notables of the African-American community. That was the place to be, was at the, at the East-West game every summer from the 30s through the 50s. Uh, like Gottlieb, in this work, he had admirers and detractors, many of whom resented his financial self-interest. But you see him there with, uh, with actually the man who's flexing his muscles is Satchel Paige. Um, he employed many Negro League players in his sports enterprise in management positions, and he supported others financially. Saperstein was also Satchel Paige's business manager. He was also the conduit for bringing Negro League talent into the Cleveland Indian organization, including Satchel Paige, when integration began. Um, the Indians, Cleveland Indians, a bad name, but good team, behind Bill Vec were the second major league team to bring in black players, not as tokens, but in numbers similar to the Dodgers. Only the New York Giants would have as positive a record as those two teams for treating black players fairly and bringing them into the major leagues in numbers rather than as token stars. Uh, the data will show that in the, in the 1950s and 60s, um, and even until today, the bench players were all white. And if you wanted to be uh, a black man in the major leagues, you, you had to be better than everybody else. Um, uh, that wasn't true with the Dodgers, it wasn't true with the Giants, and it wasn't true with the Indians. Although this side of Saperstein's involvement was generally respected, Saperstein was also involved in the most troubling aspect of black baseball, clowning or novelty baseball. Although unlike in basketball where Saperstein owned the team that clowned, the Harlem Globetrotters, Saperstein was only peripherally involved in comedy baseball. The dominant figure in that world was the third Jewish entrepreneur in my story, Sid Pollock. Um, we see him there with, again, Pollock is known best for his one accomplishment, which was uh, Hank Aaron was a member of his team, and he was, uh, he was the one who brought Hank Aaron to the major leagues, although um, he gets credit, at least, for bringing Hank Aaron to the major leagues. Pollock's career began in baseball in the early 1920s. He uh, worked in the family business in North Tarrytown, New York, where his father owned the Vaudeville Theater. Pollock believed that baseball and entertainment were made for each other, and his career would center on promoting novelty teams. He started the Bloomer Girls. Um, you know, also in the early days of baseball, women's baseball was very popular, and there were these Bloomer Girl teams. They used to get men, uh, dress men up in uh, women's clothing and have them be the pitchers and catchers because they thought the girls wouldn't do as well. Um, but they were, again, a novelty attraction. It, it was very, very popular uh, in, in the early period to find any kind of something slightly different to draw people to, to baseball games. Um, he started with the Bloomer Girls, but he quickly moved on to bringing teams from Cuba. Pollock advertised them as speaking gibberish. 
The Havana Red Sox, his team dressed in colorful uniforms and performed novelty acts like shadow ball, where players would mime a game, uh, throwing and hitting an imaginary ball with such great proficiency that people assumed they had a ball with them. Um, they did that between innings, and then sometimes they interrupted the game with various antics and routines. Now, traditional baseball, both black and white, suffered economic losses during the Depression, but comedy ball drew fans. Looking for a way to cut his expenses, bringing teams up from Cuba and dealing with their visas and stuff was rather costly. In 1936, Pollock purchased a black team that he renamed, sadly, the Ethiopian Clowns. Um, in addition to the routines, though, the clowns wore face paint, clown outfits, and the players, some of the best in Negro League baseball wound up having to take on African names. And there you see my, my friend Buster Haywood, um, unfortunately, with a little bit of face paint on him. Uh, he joined the clowns from the Belleville Grays in 1940 and played under the name of Cora, a completely meaningless made-up word as far as I can tell. Um, his comedy role was to bat with his catcher's equipment on. The other... Uh, catcher on the team played the position in a rocking chair. Saperstein handled the booking for the clowns in their early years and was often assumed to be their owner, but was not. He and Pollock were more rivals than friends, and although Saperstein booked the clowns to play against his own acts, like Satchel Paige's all-star team, uh, Paige was himself quite a gifted showman. Uh, and exhibitions by Olympic star Jesse Owens, who would race against players and sometimes even against horses. Uh, some black sports writers found the combination of clowning and excellent play to be quite humorous, and the team drew enormous crowds all around the country. But other writers and owners were deeply offended by the disrespect to Ethiopia and the minstrel-style humor, uh, not unlike that was performed by Step and Fetch It, uh, that the clowns employed. Um, th that's a, a horrific example of what some of this looked like. Um, Although Pollock eventually stopped using clown uniforms and African names, the routines remained an important dimension of the game they played, even when the team was officially admitted to the Negro American League in 1941. Uh, Pollock's teams were both reviled and respected in the world of black baseball. Now, while these Jewish owners were involved in promoting and perpetuating the business of black baseball, they also understood the value of bringing black players into the major leagues. Pollock, for example, was among the first to suggest back in 1933 that a Negro League team should play in the majors. Saperstein was perfectly happy to abandon the Negro Leagues in favor of helping blacks enter the majors in the post-Jackie Robinson era. And both Saperstein and Gottlieb had been rumored to be interested in buying the Philadelphia Phillies when they filed for bankruptcy in 1946 and replacing the white players with black ones. Uh, but those uh, stories, sadly, as far as I can tell, remain in the realm of fantasy. It was only the Jewish communist sports writers for the Daily Worker who actually contributed to the integration of baseball through their words and deeds. Uh, while the black press had been arguing for an end to baseball's color line as early as the late 1920s, it took the success of Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics and the rise of Joe Lewis as the world's heavyweight boxing champion at the same time to bring attention to the talents of black athletes whom whites had always assumed were inferior at sports. While some mainstream sports writers wrote an occasional column protesting baseball segregation, the daily workers' sports writers made it an obsession. Lester Rodney, Nat Lowe, and Bill Mardo raised the subject in their columns consistently, in fact, sometimes daily, 
from 1936 until the last team, that would be the Boston Red Sox, integrated in 1959. They staged demonstrations at baseball stadiums, created target campaigns. Actually, the first one was a plan to get the Dodgers to sign Satchel Paige in 1937. They orchestrated petitions, and they even cajoled owners, including the Pirates' Bill Benzwanger and Branch Rickey, uh, to try out black players. Um, and the photo you see there is Nat Lowe of the Daily Worker and Joe Bostic on the other side of the African-American press. And the two players in the middle were uh, show, a guy named Dave Showboat Thomas and, and Terry McDuffie. Um, those tryouts came to no, no good, but they were public demonstrations that something had to change. Um, the, the sports writers of The Worker worked cooperatively with many in the black press, although some anti-communist writers like Wendell Smith disparaged their work and claimed that they were more of a hindrance than a help. When Jackie Robinson broke the color line, it was a banner headline in The Worker, and it wasn't a banner headline in other newspapers, by the way, even though we kind of, in, you know, looking back, think it was a big deal. It actually wasn't such a big deal. Uh, but it was a big deal in The Daily Worker, and Mardo was the only writer outside the black press to accompany Robinson to spring training. Although Branch Rickey's anti-communism distressed them and probably resulted in keeping their role hidden from public attention, they never failed to credit his bold actions. So why doesn't anybody know about these stories? The Belleville Grays, the Daily Worker sports writers, and even the Jewish businessmen are not typical subjects of American Jewish history or the fodder of black Jewish relations, which has been more focused on studying Ashkenazi, uh, Eastern European Jewish religious and ethnic institutions. The kind of Jewish lives these people represented fell out of fashion when the integration of Major League Baseball began after World War II. The world of black baseball entered a slow decline, and the opportunities Jews experienced in the segregated world they inhabited, but in which they did not belong, disappeared. The social changes that permitted baseball's integration after the war also had a profound impact on Jewish identity. The post-war Jewish community capitalized on these changes in a variety of ways that would put an end to the ways Jews in black baseball expressed their identities through radicalism, minstrelsy, and blackness, um, and switched to the narrative of Jackie Robinson, Jews as um, you know, co-victims and helpers and supporters and believers in the uh, end to bigotry. But as you can see from this introduction to the experience of these other Jews, they played a strategic role in the story of Jewish assimilation to America and its difficult history of race relations. Baseball, like history, tells stories of winners and losers. The Jews of black baseball ended in obscurity, their customs and practices no longer acceptable. But as the children of immigrants and the descendants of slaves, they accomplished more than was expected of them. Their lives and legacies confirm the complexity of black and Jewish identity identities and relationships, and underscore the importance of baseball as a location for understanding America in the mid-20th century. So thanks for listening, and um, I'm happy to take any questions you have or comments, or I, I promise you I am not a skilled expert in the Negro Leagues, and you could, some of you out there can probably tell me more than I know, but um, I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have. Please. <clears throat> we all we all came here all that to hear about the like giants.
Yes, it did. And again, mostly though, as, as far as I remember before the depression, when a lot of these guys got out of the business, um, Eddie Gottlieb worked very hard with the, uh, what became the African-American owners of the Elite Giants. But I, 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 that wasn't uh, an avenue that I was going down in terms of, of my own. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just didn't. I mean, I, uh, I did. Uh, Bob, Bob Luke's, is that how he pronounced his name? Bob Luke's book is, is uh, and I had long conversations with him, but uh, even though Baltimore and Philadelphia were very close to each other, there really wasn't a lot of, of interplay. Uh, the, the Belleville Grays also played in a league where there were teams not from, from Baltimore, but from Maryland and from the Washington, D.C. area. And so they, they got around there. But uh, I, I really didn't, didn't learn as much about the Elite Giants as I uh, thought I might when I was starting out. So sorry. Uh, in the back, please. Yes, I did. I did. So it's nice to see um, the work that you put into it and see their story told. So I just want to applaud you. Thank you very much. Your father was an incredible help to me. I'm glad I I'm glad I mentioned him in the presentation. <laughs> Thank you. Um, please. How many teams play that? So that's what's interesting. We have this um, fiction called the Negro Leagues. And that fiction was created by some of the men who created these Negro these, these Negro leagues. They they wanted to be um, the, the players were as good as they were in the white leagues, and they wanted to be in leagues, but they didn't really have the money to play in leagues. So uh, so hundreds, literally hundreds of leagues formed. The Belleville Grays had been involved in three separate leagues during during their time. Local areas had, had league associations. If you start examining the records of even the, the best known and, um, and, and most solvent teams like the Newark Eagles and the, um, and the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the Homestead Grays, they weren't really playing in leagues. They were barnstorming. Uh, they'd have maybe, you know, there would be eight, eight teams and they'd decide they would, they would play in a league together and then, but the majority of their games, they played against teams like the Belleville Grays or they would, they would travel around and go wherever it was that they, that they could go to get up a, a game. Um, because also, uh, people have different thoughts about this, but there was no reserve clause, right? I mean, we, we know baseball, um, made, was, were, the owners were able to have so much more power than the players because the players, they got them to sign a contract and it wasn't a contract for a year, it was a year renewable for the rest of their lives. And they could never get out of that contract and the, and the owners of the teams in the, in the white major leagues were allowed to trade them. Right? So they, they could move them up back and forth like cattle. Um, black players in the Negro Leagues, they weren't signing their lives away like that. Uh, so they didn't, the, the black owners didn't have the power to create a reserve clause. And the players would jump. You know, one day they'd be playing for one team, another day they'd be playing for another team. Uh, they, they went where the money led them. 
And even though they tried very hard to make these things look legitimate and have leagues, and in fact, um, they did have these leagues, but if you really examine the records of all these teams, they didn't really play in league games. And it's not surprising that the East-West game, that the All-Star game was the big event. When they tried to have a World Series, nobody came. I mean, there really wasn't, there wasn't that, um, since because these teams didn't develop local followings, they developed national followings because they traveled so much. And, um, and pl cities waited, small towns waited for the Homestead Grays to show up in, in, their, in their city because they knew that they were going to see an incredible brand of, of baseball. Uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't about the quality, but it was about the business structure. So it's sort of, it's hard to say. There's um, hundreds of leagues is the answer over, over the different periods of time. Um, basically from the 1920s when a man named Rube Foster started the leagues until the mid-50s when they just, they died out. So, yes, please. Oh no, man! There's a whole community. Uh, there's um, there they actually. What are what are they? They have a, a hospital now. They have a nursing home, and people still live there. I went. They, you know, there are hundreds of people living in this community. Uh, they still sing. They don't have a baseball team anymore. And um, no, the wooden park. The wooden park was torn down. No, all I've got are those, uh, you know, um, our granddad's photographs, which are pretty wonderful just yeah, to have. Yeah, this morning, the white players after the Warriors, did they combine with the barnstorming group? Yep. Yeah. Uh, what, the, what, what, um, in the 20s and 30s, they barnstormed all the time. The white players barnstormed with black players or, you know, played against them. Again, it's, this is novelty baseball, right? So... In the 1920s, a white team playing against a black team. That's, that's what brings the, brings the crowds in. Uh, and a lot of, you know, Babe Ruth played um, with, with black players, and uh, they played in Cuba together where there were no, um, you know, where there, there were the, not these kinds of, of ridiculous racial segregation. Um, what happened was that the black players started beating the white team, you know, or Satchel Paige would, would like strike out six of them in a row, and uh, and the the head of Major League Baseball, I guess it was Judge Landis, forbade them to go barnstorming or to play more often than one game every once in a while. So there's a lot of controversy, a lot of controversy over that. Um, Bob Feller, who was no friend of African Americans, was actually one of the the biggest uh, supporters of this and got the most involved, and he was a very uh, you know, he's a very famous pitcher. He didn't like Jews either. Um, he didn't like much anybody except Bob Feller, as far as I could tell. Uh, but, but he, you know, he was willing to lend his name to that effort. So, um, yeah, uh, yep. How much did a black player Compared to other occupations, they did well. Compared to the white players, they did not do well. But the white players didn't do well either, right? I mean, people were not getting the the players were not making money playing playing baseball. But and and it, it was only a six month occupation. I mean, I remember as a child when the when the uh, the players would all like work in auto plants during the winter and and, and such. So uh, 
So the ones that that played for teams like Sid, Sid Pollock again was a I, I don't know, you know, he he wasn't a set, racially sensitive man, but those Indianapolis clowns uh, they changed their name from Ethiopian to Indianapolis. They made money because he booked them to play hundreds of games. I mean, he was a really gift, and that that is where some of the some of these Jewish entrepreneurs and and some of the black entrepreneurs as well just did extremely well by these players because they um, they worked them really hard. But and and they played some of them played two three games a day, and and they so they made they made a decent living. But it wasn't, uh, you know, it was very, very hard work, a lot of traveling, third-rate buses, you know, third-rate travel uh, experiences that couldn't ride on the railroads, right? So they had to go in, in buses. Um, Sid, Sid Pollock, according to his own records, bought decent buses for them at least to, to travel in. Other owners weren't so interested in how the players got from one place to another. Any other questions? I'm sorry, folks came in uh, a little bit late. I guess I could do this again. <laughs> Were there other questions or comments? Or, yes, please. It's just another answer to how much money everybody made. Uh, in the year 1948, uh, the primary and I subdued a field, and I got a base hit, and knocked it around. And when the inning changed, I came back. Two guys leaned over the barrier and handed me money. They didn't say money. <laughs> <laughs> Every pitch was a bet. You can see, uh, you put the ones between your thumb, the twos, the fives, and the tens, and you would hold up money. And other people would bet. They'd call you on a bet, and you pull one out. And uh, I saw this happen just because they involved with myself. It wasn't supposed to happen anymore, right? I mean, that was that. It was it was rampant. That was rampant, certainly, including in the in the major leagues up until the time of the White Sox scandal. Uh, people would just that was what people did when they went to the park. I mean, they would all bet. They bet on hits. They bet on runs. They bet. They bet on every play. Um, but then it it they, it, it kind of got shunted to the side. But obviously, lots of things that aren't public also still go on. Please. Uh, you said Bellevue. Belleville. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no problem. Um, they were uh, outstanding teams. Were they accepted <coughs> in the places they went by the uh, Jewish communities? Well, they didn't. They didn't go. I mean, they played in the in the black world, and uh, they had had some some difficulties in terms of how they were perceived in public. And they, they tended not to uh, advertise their status as Hebrew Israelites. They knew who they were, and that was sort of good enough for them. But they didn't, they didn't mix with, um, with white Jews. A lot of black Jews had very, very bad experiences mixing with, with white Jews uh, who insisted they weren't Jewish and insisted that they convert. And um, these folks did, just didn't get involved in the in the white Jewish community at all. Although I do have a record of their playing uh, a game against the Patterson YMHA, that's the Young Men's Hebrews Association, in 1923. So it's possible that in the early 20s they, they did do a little bit more mixing. And if they were playing against the team, one assumes they were, they were accepted. Um, but whether people knew, really knew who they were or not, um, 
it's it, it's not clear. Things have changed quite a bit. I mean, the only reason I got to meet um, uh, uh, Joel Wagner was because I was introduced to the community by one of their rabbis who was very, very proud of their team and very proud of this history and wanted me to know about it. So he, you know, he introduced me to the community and brought me down and and let me learn about uh, about what they did. And uh, I think I was fortunate enough because there's so much in the black press about this team. I hope I uh, I was also able to give them back some uh, information about about their team as well. Um, but in in the earlier periods, their black Jews and white Jews didn't didn't really mix much. Thank you. Thank you.